Hello and welcome to the Tao of Wow, Laura calls it the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I am Doug Balshaw. And I'm Laura Hilliger. To kick us off, we want to mention Open Collective, which is a platform that allows us to, quote, accept donations and sponsorships, celebrate our supporters, pay expenses, and keep everyone up to date all in one place. It is very transparent, and you can find us at opencollective.com slash weareopen. Uh, Today, we are joined by our second guest, and I'm very excited because John and I have not met before. Uh, So I'm very interested to see where we go in the next 45 minutes or so. Um, But welcome, John. And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you and a bit about Code Operative? Uh, Sure. So um, I am a pediatric millennial from Newcastle, uh, software developer. Um, And uh, Code Operative is a two and a half year old tech co-op based in Gateshead, which is near Newcastle. I think that makes it like Generation Alpha or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, our website is uh, code-operative.co.uk. And um, yeah, I volunteered to be on the podcast with a, with a joke that I wanted to see if uh, Laura not being from the UK and Doug being from uh, the same region as me would get. It is a regional joke. So that can I can I tell the joke? Yeah, yes, but I'm not going to get it, but go ahead. Yeah, okay. But you might enjoy it anyway, even if you don't get it. Maybe. Um, okay, so um, a man uh, in Ashington walks into a hairdresser's, uh, says, can I have a perm, please? The hairdresser says, certainly, sir. I wandered lonely as a clerd. What? So the version I've heard of that is um, Kevin Keegan goes into the uh, into the hairdressers when okay, he's right. yeah, yeah. So um, to get that joke, Laura, you'd have to have heard my accent when I was about fifteen years old, growing up in Ashington. Um, it's got this dialect which is pitmatic, and so perm and poem sound the same. So can I have a perm? Certainly, sir. I wandered lordly as a clued. As in, I wandered lonely as a cloud, as in quoting a poem at him rather than giving him a poem. I think anyway, why would he? Why would he be asking for a poem? <laughs> <laughs> My face is just saying this is a very British joke. It's a very, it's a quite a niche joke, I would it's say. It's very yeah. niche. Yeah. It's funny between it. like two rivers in the northeast of England. Um, yeah, <laughs> no. If you, if you, I think the Kevin Keegan one would travel wider. Um, my friend, I told my friend that he's from Oxford, and he did tell it to his dad, but he changed it from Ashington to Newcastle just to make it like more. Uh, ah, okay, okay. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> we could probably do an entire podcast with uh, regional jokes. I think all of mine are not suitable for public consumption. I grew uh, up in a... like West Virginia. Uh, not West. No, don't push my buttons. I am not from West Virginia. I am from Virginia. And in the United States, all of the states have an enemy state, a nemesis state. And so the nemesis state for Ohio is Michigan. The nemesis state for Virginia is West Virginia. I don't know what all of them are, but I don't know why. It's 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 almost like like I remembered that on purpose just to push your buttons. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's almost like that. I don't know why I get I get like adrenaline shot up my neck when people tell me I'm from West Virginia. Hmm. Born and raised. Yeah, you know, um, we're culturally conditioned. 
We have jokes like, you know, why don't they have ice cubes in West Virginia? Because they lost the recipe. Yes. <laughs> that's similar to uh, Geordie's and Mackham's, which is for, yeah, Mackham's were from, from Sunderland and Geordie's off in Newcastle. It's the same kind of thing. Regional rivalry. Yes. That's so, right. So what does what does Code Operative do? Um, um, we are a sort of bog standard tech hook. If you want apps or websites, then we will make your app and website. Um, hopefully, that you are not uh, an evil doer, and, and we never we, we haven't had to turn down. Well, I suppose because it's a freelancer co-op. Um, when the evil, when, I don't know, not not evil doer, but like say uh, advertising projects or whatever, like people generally just don't volunteer to do them. Like we get. Someone goes, I found this lead for this advertising project, and then no one does it. <laughs> it's, um, so oh, so it's, a, it's a network of freelancers, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we're sort of in a refounding process at the moment, so we're trying to decide like how uh, dense do we want the network to be, and does it maybe make sense to be um, employees or to move from or to have like a worker status or whatever. And you can have a meaningful distinction between. I tell you what, we can totally help you with that rebrand away from bog standard. If you want. <laughs> I don't mind it so much. <laughs> I've, I've been, um, uh, I've been, cause of the refounding, I've been trying to think about like what, um, what, what I actually wanted to be. And for, for the, from the start of the co-op, it was very, very sort of exciting doing those like new things. Right. And, I, um, I've become more, uh interested in imitation rather than innovation when it comes to like running this running this business and just being like picking this picking the easiest thing that i know already works and then having like a reference point to uh to build up yeah well, exactly I've... when you when you try and innovate on everything at the same time it's kind of impossible you have to have something yeah. which is you know the same and code operative is also a member of the cotech network right yes i mean i i think um um I did. I think that it came out of the. It it's sort of inspired by the other co-op in Cotech, right? I mean, that's sort of what the. I've been thinking about what the project of Code Operative is, and it's sort of like just doing doing a tech co-op in a particular place more than the structure is experimental. It's the, the like context that is experimental in the sense that can this can it work in this place with these people? Um. Uh. So we've had a lot of uh, advice and support from um people in like agile collective and outlandish and um i know lots to name people <laughs> it's just it's just always been good to sort of check in with people and get get help from them in terms of what we're doing yeah cool. as as have we we are open as definitely access resources from the cotech network and there's lots of people in that network that are just really experienced with co-ops including all of the kinds of um challenges that might arise or conversations where you know being new to this kind of structure can you know some some of the decisions you have to make when you know every when you do mm. con consensus based decision making or you know when you have to make decisions about stuff that you're maybe not an expert in like yeah. for me it's you know i'm really glad that other people in we are open deal with like spreadsheets and finances <laughs> um, because I get really stressed out. Not because I'm that horrible at maths, but people get the energy from different places. Exactly. Um, actually, Tim Claptor had some kind of feedback and questions from us first from uh, Twitter, which we didn't get to in previous episodes. Um, but before we get to that, cause I think John might have some kind of input on that. John, I think you've been listening to previous episodes and you had some, 
But you you wanted to reflect on your own experience of oh yeah sure so um uh so this is from last episode so people listening chronologically uh, in a, a binge binge listening this is going to be so delicious for you um <laughs> so um uh this is about context switching right and 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 basically uh last week I was I had four four about like and maybe an hour task on four different um projects and because the context switch was like sort of purely uh, purely internal in the sense that I was, all, all that was changing was what I was thinking about rather than the place I was in or what I was doing. Because I was just sitting at my computer, I was going to open a different file, um, different set of folders or whatever for a different project. Um, I could feel as I was like thinking, right, now I'm going to go do this. I could feel I being actually physically painful to enter that domain, even though I wasn't actually, actually I wasn't moving in space, but moving... Um, moving in moving in context i was like just <laughs> going into it being like i don't want to do this and feeling sort of resistance <laughs> from my brain or something um i played with that a couple of times just to see what it was what it was like because <laughs> it was really uh it was quite a novel experience to have a uh i don't know <laughs> to, to, to have to feeling resistance about that sort of a set a set of information or shapes that was just there yeah i i, I feel like the the pandemic for me has really caused that to be problematic. So previously, yeah, I work from home, but I've worked from coffee shops and the library and, you know, my parents' house and whatever. And so sometimes I will literally go and do some kind, a particular kind of task like research or writing or whatever in a particular place. Sometimes it's just, I cannot stand these four walls anymore. I need to go somewhere else. And when you can't do that, because you've got everything set up and you can't go anywhere because there's lockdown, it's really kind of a problem. You have to force yourself to make that conceptual switch. Yeah, that's why I picked up on the the the, the mode switching thing. Is like the reason I think that mode switching feels good and context switching feels bad is because the mode uh, you're taking, you're keeping the context, and you're just taking the context to a different place, um, mm. which is probably much more. Enjoy- well, yeah, it is, is it's almost the opposite of what was happening with uh, with me changing project, and I was I was carrying all of the. All, I don't know, all of the work was being done by me rather than the space or whatever. Do, do either of you have rituals that you do when you're changing context? Like when you're staying at your computer, but you're switching to a different client project or whatever, a different kind of task. Do you mean like, do you mean like standing up, turning around three times and saying, yes, that's exactly what I mean. Do you do a couple of push ups and then switch context or? No, no, that's not a great idea. No. <laughs> I don't do that. No, I uh, I was actually thinking about um, the way that, so I basically live in my browser. Uh, all of my projects are in my browser, but I have different tab groups for uh, different projects. And so like one of my rituals is if I'm going to think about something else, then I have to switch all of the tabs that I have open um, so that I'm only focused on the thing that I'm context switching to. Um, and I move, you know, I move tabs between groups because of course I open stuff that's not relevant to what I'm doing, uh, every once in a while. Uh, but I find that switching between these 20 tabs and those 20 tabs and knowing I'm going from, you know, Greenpeace to Catalyst and not seeing any more tabs open from the Greenpeace project and only seeing Catalyst tabs helps my brain kind of reset a little mm. bit. Um, when I had a Mac, I did when I was working at Mozilla, I did have a Mozilla login on my Mac and a personal one, which worked for a bit. But then, like, within work, I don't think it would work. The only ritual I've got, um, this reminds me, there's a comedian in the UK called jo- um, 
James Acaster. Yeah. And in one of his stand-ups, he talks about no more jobs. At the end of the day, he always says no more jobs. And then he like mentally moves on. I don't do that because that's a bit crazy. But <laughs> my monitor in my office, which you two can see while we're recording this podcast, I've also got my PlayStation here as well, which I plan and my son plays on. Now, one of the HDMI cables died recently on that, and I decided not to replace it. And so now, when it gets to Friday, I literally turn off my computer, switch the HDMI cable over to the PlayStation, and it's the weekend as soon as I do that, which is actually pretty good. It works out quite well. Yeah. It means I'm now terrible at FIFA, though, because I don't play it. So, but you're you're always <laughs> saying we should be recording this podcast from inside Red Dead Redemption around a campfire. So mm. how do you expect that we can accomplish that if you only have one HDMI cable? Just well, curious. Well, we'd either have to... It's not that I've only owned one HDMI cable. It's more like I've decided not to replace it for, like, good reason. You see what I mean? But we should totally record this podcast and actually have all of our co-op meetings around Red Dead Redemption. And Brian's just going to have to buy, and John will just have to buy a PS4. <laughs> and you get your kickback from Rockstar. That's right. That's right. Uh, Rockstar, if you're listening to this podcast <laughs> and you would like to support us, uh, please send a very large check to... No, go kidding. to our Open Collective. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Go to opencollective.com slash we are open. We are open. <laughs> Yes. Anyway, let's get on plug. to okay. let's get on to Tim Clapdoor's uh, feedback and questions. This was on Twitter at the end of April. Sorry, Tim, for taking so long. Um, and I put a link there to his question. So he said, "I'm curious about the practicalities of the co-op." So he had some questions. How do you guys divvy up income? Do you have a consensus decision-making process or majority? And then finally, not an easy topic, but you mentioned some members leaving. I'm big picture curious as to why and how. So we've got John here, who's also a member and founder of a co-op. Um, shall we yeah. just go through those questions one by one? Yeah, sure. Um, John, do you want to go first? How do you give divvy up income in, in Codeoperative? Uh, there's two ways to earn money in Codeoperative. Um, you can work on projects or um, you can, I don't know, receive it as work that you do for the co-op that people sort of vote for so um um in general when we when we when we vote out money that happens equally so we just say oh we've got a surplus uh this month or year or whatever let's everyone gets i don't know 500 pounds or something um and then on projects um our system is that we in 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 most projects we're charging uh clients by the hour um and the way it works is the co-op co-op charges five percent to the client and five percent to the uh, member or freelancer. Um, so uh, the co-op is making a ten percent slice out of whatever you sort of hourly charge. The the projects set their own uh, rates. So if you would like to earn more money in the co-op, then join a project that is paying higher rates. There's arguments about whether you should whether we should increase or top up or something, but um, we haven't really discussed it yet or set a system. So at the moment, it's just literally kind of penetrated by the by the market quite quite a lot, um, and it just is kind of a it's kind of a more gentle interface to the freelancer market, but it's mm. still very much there. It's not really how do you how do you track? Sorry, just a really quick one. How do you track your time to make sure everyone's got their hours 
Uh, it's different on different projects. Uh, generally, some kind of shared timesheet, like a Google sheet or something like that. Okay. Or in so yeah, no, I do I'm it just... on on a notepad document, and then I it all piles up, and I have to spend like an hour adding them to all the different timesheets. But in general, I track it based on I write down like today today on one project I've put start at twelve, and I'll put paused at I don't know two fifty five before to come onto this. I'll write down what I did in that time, and then I'll yeah, yeah. and then and... it's something out of spreadsheet. Yep. And when Sorry. you say that, um, when you say that projects set their own rates, do you have a sliding scale that you bill clients, or do you always bill clients the same thing, and then um, you know projects set their day rate within within that limit? Um, no, the projects charge charge clients different things, um, okay. and we're not good at set, we're not good at sliding a scale. Um, there is there is an implicit sliding scale on like what people would accept um, to go on it, um, and whether you can attract people to the project. Um, right. Um, it would be good to have one if we had a sort of rational thing, but it, it's, uh, I think that it, this is probably part, probably part of the refounding process would be to have some kind of rate card or some sort of like formula to select them. I think at the moment, um, we are aim to get the highest that the client can pay for a reason to make the project possible. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. But we're not very good at, I, I don't know. We're not, we're not brilliant at negotiating for that. I think it's, it's. But luckily, we haven't been negotiating with like sharks so far, so it's not been too bad. But I don't feel like we would do that well if someone was actually trying to get as low as possible um, a rate out of us. Well, it's a learning process. We've been what five years now, and it it takes time to figure all this stuff out. And you get, you know, Laura said that she didn't like she doesn't like spreadsheets. I don't like spreadsheets either. You get some people who are just attracted towards partnerships and negotiation and some people who are attracted towards doing research and whatever and you need all kinds of people laura i feel like given that you're very good at documenting all the things on our wiki which we'll put in the show notes um you might be the most up-to-date mentally with how we do money things on the oh. <laughs> <laughs> um actually you know we're quite similar to code operative we have different um we we charge by uh, half days um, so not by the hour. So that's one difference that we try to do full days, um, just because it's easier to keep track of and calculate. Um, we give discounts to nonprofits and educational institutions, um, you know, projects that we think are doing good in the world. Um, and we do have a sliding scale, but I don't know what the bottom is and I don't know what the top is. <laughs> <laughs> the minimum, the minimum is six two five. Right. And, yeah. and we sort of re reserve the minimum rate for when we're working with other cooperatives, uh, when we're working with really small nonprofits, um, you know, trying to, you know, trying to make sure that we are, that we have inclusive rates, really, because mm. um, we do a lot of different kinds of projects. And there, frankly, there are people that need our help, especially small charities that they just can't, you know, they just can't afford like a quote unquote consultancy rate. I mean, there's all these consultancy calculators on the internet you can go have a look at. I, you know, I've done them for like speaking gigs in the past pre pre pandemic times. Uh, and I've never been um, comfortable with what those calculators tell me. Like I just cannot, I sorry, but like asking for three grand a day or something just seems absolutely ridiculous. The highest me. thing I think I've worked on the co-op was when we got paid partly in crypto. Yeah. <laughs> um for near 
And I yeah. think that was like almost three times our minimum day rate. But because we got paid 40% in crypto and our crypto has now gone through the floor, yeah. um, turns out I got paid a lot less than I, <laughs> I would do for that project. <laughs> Same. And I still have the crypto and I look at it every once in a while and I'm like, I should have sold this back in May when all the crypto markets were like way up. Oops. We should probably say, though, um, to answer Tim's question, that uh, unlike Code Operative, which takes 10%, we take 25% for the internal pot, which is quite a chunk, which means that for a minimum day rate, for example, um, each member would be on 500 um, instead of 65. Um, and then we use that money to pay ourselves for monthly co-op days, just general co-op work, um, any kind of professional development stuff we do. Um, and so we've always got a few thousand in that pot just to kind of, if there's no work on. Um, and so I feel like, I, I know out, the way that Outlandish work, having done a lot of work with them, um, you know, they pretty much guarantee almost like they're employed, like mm -hmm. um, a certain number of days per year or pretty much working full time. We're somewhere in between the, the two, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we track our time on Toggle on an hourly basis, and we could get into all of the logic of that. We kind of went into a little bit on that last last time there. Um, let's move on to the next one. Do you have a consensus decision-making process or majority? So just to make sure for, for those who are listening who aren't used to all of this stuff, because it's usually just their boss decides, Consensus would be, you know, like everyone has to agree, otherwise it doesn't go ahead. Majority would be a bit like the Brexit vote. Oh, if you get 51%, then, you know, it's... Well, it's 52, it's that's decisive. That's decisive. Um. <laughs> um, and there's other ways as well. But what, John, what do you do? Um, we, are we are transitioning to a uh, consent-based decision process uh, called sociocracy. Um, I wouldn't say that we are fully enabled it yet um but that's what we're sort of we're aiming to get to um uh we have i think formally i think formally we still probably have the consensus decision process the only difference between as far as that for, for me the difference between consensus and consent based is about uh preference versus tolerance so with consensus you're aiming to satisfy everyone's preference whereas with consent based you're aiming to satisfy everyone's like tolerance for what, what they can tolerate being remaining a part of. Um, um, I think that in, in, in real, it sounds like a very clear distinction when you just say it, but in, in real life, I feel like the, uh, I feel like the tension is going to be why, why are we always, why am I always tolerating this when you clearly prefer it? <laughs> like um, uh, yeah, maybe that's perhaps just pessimistic, but I feel like that could, it's, yeah. I can I feel like there's still going to be a little bit of that horse trading aspect of like mm. you take this mm. I get that that kind of thing. Yeah, it's never as clean and clear as it as it seems. Um, I think for us, this is going to feed in a little bit to the third question because we had people leave our co-op the end of last year and then we moved to a consent based decision making for proposals. Um, yeah, there's something different about the size, but we did have six members. We've now got four members, but only three are active. So it's a lot easier when you've got fewer members. Like It's just easier to make decisions. Um, but yeah, Laura, what, I'm curious about your thoughts around consent-based decision-making because... Um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of feel like we used to be quite good at consensus 
Um, but we are also transitioning in the last year or so to sociocracy and consent-based decision-making. And um, sometimes we forget that that's the way that we want to do things. And then we, you know, have a discussion. And then at some point, somebody is like, oh, you know what we should do? A proposal. Remember that? Mm. Um, so we all, everyone in our co-op took the sociocracy uh, course from Outlandish, which we'll link to in the show notes, uh, which is really interesting because I think understanding and learning the process is once you've done that, then, you know, actually running the process on a regular basis becomes quite easy. Um, so I've really actually quite enjoyed our, uh, foray into sociocracy. Um, but yeah, because consensus, even amongst, um, small numbers of people, there are times when consensus is just absolutely impossible. Um, and so I think, I think that this, this new way of, um, really thinking, thinking about how can we have a conversation and to, you know, try things that are good enough for now um, has really benefited us as an organization. I was going to link to, sorry, go on, John. I was at the, my first, um, uh, my first experience of sociocracy was before um, Co-Adoptive actually started. I was in, um, I was in a student housing corp um, in Edinburgh and we had, we did, we had a consensus we have what we call the consensus decision process, but because there was a hundred people, it was we we'd refined it like quite a few times. So it was, it was um, partly my responsibility to manage the like keeping keeping track of what the rules actually were, and then like applying them, and then like letting people know how it worked. <laughs> um, we had we had over time refined it to switch to a system based on. Um, reservations so rather than rather than have rather than blocking so basically because it because the 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 stuff you get for like if you go on like seeds for change or something um you can get a consensus decision process from there um includes like blocks and objections and cons- and stuff like that and we'd introduced reservation which as, as i understand is very similar to a sort of um concern critical concern like boundary um and then uh, then someone found out about this incredible new thing called sociocracy and in my head, I was like, we already do this. All you've done is you all you've done is you found something you found like a brand name and then that sort of ad, ad, advertises this fantastic process and as the solution to our problems. It is these are not our problems. Like the the problem is that we're a student housing corp and everyone leaves as soon as they learn how the system works. Um, right. exactly. <laughs> that's not it's like that's the that's the um that 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 to me was the that that and also that the um the common like the com the, the spaces that we use as common areas were being um, sort of redeveloped, so they were unusable for a long time because they were a building site, which basically meant there was no neutral space for the members to have like co-op co-op gatherings where and to build up that sort of reserve of like goodwill and trust um, that I think is foundational for a co-op. And I think that once you lose social gatherings, you. I yeah. think that the I think that the goodwill and trust is. Um, one of the problems of consensus-based decision-making because mm-hmm. consensus-based decision-making, if somebody doesn't agree, then typically what happens is somebody who has a good relationship with that person kind of like goes behind the scenes, kinds to shark them into one decision or another. And if they're just not budging, then that you know person who maybe has a good relationship with somebody else will go and try and t- change their opinion. And it's kind of like I mean, it's behind the curtain sort of politicky way to handle an organization. And I think that is ripe for, 
misunderstanding, miscommunication, and a really good way to really, really damage relationships between people because not everything is happening in the open. Conversations are not transparent. And, you know, there's there's kind of like a weird manip- manipulative factor that happens. Um, yeah. And lack of, lack of trust just kills co-ops or any kind of association or organization, right? So you could implement, you know, some of the organizations I've worked with and, and in, you could apply sociocracy, but if you didn't change the culture of that organization at all, it would still be horrendous. So for those listening, I'll stick links to some blog posts I've written about this, but basically, if I get this right, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you make a proposal, someone makes a, a proposal, someone else then runs that process, and the first thing is you go around and you ask each person individually, do you have any clarifying questions? So if anything doesn't make sense or you're not sure of the scope of what someone's proposing, whatever, just to make sure it's clearer in your mind. And usually you've got something to, to write down, or it might be online or you might be writing it on a clipboard and you literally have the proposal there in front of you. Um, once everyone's asked all the questions they want to ask, you can test for consent. So it's usually kind of a, a thumbs up. You go around and see if people are thumbs up in the middle or thumbs down. Um, there's different ways of running it, but often if everyone's thumbs up, then it just passes. But uh, often there's someone wavering, in which case you go to critical concerns. And again, you ask everyone individually and you ask for a critical concern. And this goes back to what John was saying earlier about the difference between an objection and a preference. So um, the example often given is to do with like food preferences. Um, you might not like or you might prefer a different bar of chocolate to a different one. But the, the difference might be, well, my critical concern is that you're proposing that we have Snickers and I um, I will die if I have nuts. So there's all that kind of stuff as well. And often it just teases out things that you weren't expecting. Um, sometimes, and I've seen this in our co-op and our outlandish, <clears throat> these, these conversations go really quickly. The proposal takes about two minutes. But sometimes... It can take more than an hour to do one proposal. But that's okay, I would say, because it's actually showing that there's other things bubbling under the surface that need to be addressed as well. I'm just thinking about what Laura said about the um, the politiquing of consensus decision-making about how it's sort of based on relationships. And my only reaction to that is I find that very fun um, to do that part of it. I suppose you are right that, it, that maybe it isn't the best probably well, isn't the most uh, maybe long-term uh, sustainable kind of thing. I don't I know. Mean, it's it's fun until conflict arises. And that's when, even more you know, fun. it's yes. it, when it's low bars, low stake, then that's, yeah. it's kind of okay. But when conflict arises, it can get really, really hairy, especially for the person who's trying to serve as a bridge. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just, I, you know, I'm sort of uh, projecting mm. here because I've been that bridge person before and hearing two, two, different sides of a story that you've experienced and that you also see the narrative quite differently means that you have three different perspectives to pay attention to, one of them being your own, and then two other truths that you have to kind of manage. Um, and and the conflict can, it could just, it can be very stressful, I would say. This might be a nice segue to the third question, which is not an easy topic, but you mentioned some members leaving. I'm big picture curious as to why and how um who would like to pick up the button and go first on this one oh i think we should punt immediately to john and say hey john has anybody <laughs> ever left code operative 
Um, we have had. I'm just trying to think. We've had. Uh, we've had three people. We've had three people leave ever. Um, the first was an Italian guy who I think expected the co-op to do a lot more. So we we had just started, and he sort of arrived. I don't I don't know how he found out about the co-op. Maybe he Googled it or something. Um, so I think in Italy, uh, co-ops are a much sort of bigger, more uh, developed thing. Um, or the co-op movement seems to be sort of more uh, naturalized. So I think he was expecting there to be like quite quite a, quite a mature co-op ready to get a uh, ready to take on uh, his his skills. So he was quite quite a senior um, Apple developer. Um, and we weren't really ready for we weren't really ready for him. We didn't have loads of um, iOS uh, app projects lined up for him or anything. Um, and uh, yeah, so 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 he left basically for like I, I suppose business reasons. He also moved away to get a different job in near London. Um, uh, similarly, that's how the one of the most recent people left because um, of the pandemic. Moved back to um, Bulgaria, where he was from, and was just not really in, in, in communication with any of us for quite a long time and got another job. Um, and at that point, it's like, there's no reason to, there's no, you don't, we don't really have a rule about people being dormant or inactive or active or whatever. But I think in his mind, it was like, I don't want to be a member of a co-op that I have no, uh, that I don't do anything for or mm-hmm. does anything for me. I think it's better to, better to just uh, pause the relationship on good grounds rather than have it sort of just a silent thread continuing on. Um it's yeah. interesting that you mention um, a dormant policy. We are open actually does have a dormant policy that we put into place uh, a couple of years ago um, because Doug needed a break. Actually, um, just had too much stuff going on, and the co-op was just an extra amount of stress. But he didn't want to leave the co-op, and all of the sort of membership rules were really about participation. And we realized that it doesn't make sense for the co-op to not allow dormancy in members. Like we shouldn't, you know, if people want to pay the membership fee and they, you know, want to um, be part of what we've built, then by all means, we should encourage that. And so we came up with a way that, uh, like a policy with how you can be a member of We Are Open without uh, having to come to every meeting and, um, you know, participate in the running of the business. And that's something that we... Um, have to go back to each and every year um, just because as you know as a business grows as a co-op grows uh, as we get different kinds of clients like the the active members constantly need to check in with each other about how they feel about the organization as a whole and so that's something that we've really built into like our um, our monthly co-op days and stuff we check in mm. with each other how are we feeling about different levels of participation how do we feel about dormancy policy and these kinds of things yeah, so that co-op day. Uh, but the other thing, like Laura said, <clears throat> we have to go back and not in check, not only check in with each other, but check actually what we decided. So that's why having things written down, not a constitution, but like a, just a these are our policies at the moment, and then sharing those openly can be quite useful. So we've got an installation of uh, WikiJS at wiki.weareopen.coop, and it's got our kind of rules around dormancy there. I think the most important thing about dormancy is that they're still a member of the co-op and they're still very welcome. They can turn up at any point and they don't have to explain themselves. But while they're not there and while they're dormant, we can go ahead and make decisions without them being there. They can't block it. That's the deal. Yeah. I think that's the implied thing that we have, but it's not written down anywhere. We are trying, we are writing stuff down. So that's part, part of this refounding process is, um, we actually do have a set of membership guidelines that are referenced in the membership contract that people sign but the 
the set of guidelines is a 404 page at the moment. Um, it's so <laughs> what you're what you're signing to is is, is a not found at the moment. Um, <laughs> so you abide by that. Um, um, and then obviously, if we want to put anything there, we, we do have to agree as a corp, like what what ends up there, right? Um, so something, yeah. I'm I'm going to be delving into your wiki later on uh, to to steal some stuff from that. Um, cool. From... And um, just for John or anyone in, who's in corps who would like to see some other pages, like there are other pages that are private to us because they mention either personal details or whatever. So with the agreement of other corp members, I can or we can show you those as well. Cool. Um, do we want to go into any more detail about why people left our co-op law? I didn't finish the. I didn't finish the. the oh, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, John All right. So um, we also had we also had one person who um, was I think finding the like uh, the non-hierarchical nature of it quite quite difficult. Um, in that, um, it's difficult to sort of figure out figure out the I don't know the intentions or what what people were wanting in the co-op um, from from him um and then didn't and then also find it difficult to communicate with them what he was what he was wanting um and it ended up creating like a sort of a large rift where he was uh, where there was, there was sort of like a social deficit um and uh yeah things 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 were working out very well and eventually eventually he just said that it wasn't uh the corp wasn't helping him grow um which was yeah which was true i think um as it so i, I don't think that mm. At least, at least our co-op, which is very, uh, very loose and flexible, works well for some people, but not for others. I think if they want a very clear uh, expectation or very, I don't know, a social environment that has lots of cues and um, the decisions are already made, like what to do, when to come in, what what to, what to, what to work on, when to do, like how to do it, that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think I mean I think that the that the structure of a co-op isn't for everyone. Um I think that you know there it's it's quite hard I think that if you've grown up in western industrialized society it's quite hard to understand a model other than capitalism as uh an economic structure that can work for you. Um and I think that you know in our case I I think that there were some some real uh, value differences around that and sort of the difference between, you know, a growth mindset versus maybe a sustainability mindset, um, particularly in, re in relationship to capital. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's tricky if you, you know, you get, the more people you get in a room, the more the dynamic changes. Um, and, you know, finding a, finding a group of people that, that can work together, uh, in a long-term way is, a, is tricky, which is why people, you know, often move jobs or, um, it's not always just a sort of personal decision, but also a social decision. Um, and so I, I definitely think that, that there's something about the, um, equality and equity of a cooperative structure that is difficult for people, like especially when you're, you know, you're raised up in a society that values hierarchy and that's what you're taught to understand. Um, having, you know, having a completely flat structure where everybody has, you know, one member, one vote, that can be really difficult for people who are, um, I don't, I mean, I feel like I'm very strong willed, but I find it, um, not difficult for me. So I don't know, I don't know exactly what it is about, uh, the particular value structure that makes it hard to participate in a cooperative. Um, but I think it's just hard for some people. Uh, Doug, I think you're muted. 
didn't even know I had one. It's because my mouse is super clicky. Uh, what was I saying? So, yeah, um, I think the I agree with everything that Laura said. And I think the other thing is that, well, the point is that I've just completely forgotten my train of thought because I was thinking about muting and uh, but <laughs> never mind. Never That's mind. the best part of the podcast when the podcast has to say, what was I talking about? Uh, have, you, uh, have either of you come across um, Robert Keegan's of adult developmental uh, theories? It's kind of like there's... Uh, it's like a five. It's like a five-stage thing, taking you from uh, childhood to like um, postmodern or metamodern kind of um, sensibilities, right? So it's basically like um, it's it, it's a whole framework. I can I can skip it if we don't if we don't find it interesting. But um, it's like um, it's basically the difference between um, what adolescence is trying to teach you and like what our, what our society is set up to teach, which is to be a sort of social human being, which is that you. Um, it rather rather than not vandalizing people's cars because you are afraid of the police, it's because you genuinely think that you you're, you feel like you're part of a society, and if you vandalize the car and hurt someone else in a way, you're kind of hurting yourself, right? right. Um, oh. And then uh, yeah, I but feel like yeah. I was just gonna say that is a great segue to the vaccine topic. It really is. It really okay, is. sure, sure. I'll, we'll leave that. But basically, basically, the, the my my. Um, the, the the thing is basically the the social reality this the 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 level the stage right of, of getting to a social sort of way of understanding is what our society is geared up to like produce and then the the one after that is the sort of systematic self which is more about understanding like your own interests and what you want um and i feel like being part of a co-op requires having a systematic self in the sense that instead of um being your relationships with other people, you have relationships with other people. You have it as like an object that you can um, put priorities on and, and set. I think without without a uh, without an authority figure to sort of decide what people's relationships should be, um, you have to do it for yourself. And if you are if you don't have that systematic way of being, then uh, it's not going to work very well. I've remembered what I was going to say. That's really interesting, John. If you can mm-hmm. find any links, stick in the show notes. That would be sure. fantastic. Um, what I was going to say is that we, you know, it's it took us a, a while to understand what a co-op was and what we were trying to do. Yet we just assumed that the members joining our co-op understood what a co-op was, even though we'd had to grapple with us and figure things out. Like we didn't offer really any training or anything like that. And we ourselves have done training since they've left. And so I think I think there's um, lots for us to learn from from the experience. I'm really right. Interested- well, I'm interested in this. Um, yeah, I'm segueing. You are segueing. I'm just, well, I'm trying. <laughs> I, I'm interested in. Um, yeah, John, if you can find a link to that framework, I'd love to to see what that's about because I think there is something about um, being part of a cooperative um, and seeing it from a collective perspective. So, you know, the example you gave about vandalizing cars rather than you know being afraid of the the police—that's a very individualist perspective. I will be harmed. Uh, or I will get in trouble versus I don't want to hurt somebody else's car. That's like a, co- a more collective um, sort of way of thinking. And I think that that, that kind of collective viewpoint um, has been coming up more and more for me in terms of understanding some of the problems in our world and thinking that if we were going to solve them, we need a lot more people thinking from a collective perspective rather than an individualistic one. And I think that, you know, 
I think that um, that collective mindset is something that would help with climate change, for example, um, but also specifically because we've been saying we're going to talk about the IP on the vaccine for uh, two episodes at least, um, you know, in thinking about whether or not there should be IP on the vaccine, I think that that collective, you know, that collective view is really important here. And I'm curious to know um, whether the framework that you mentioned can help guide that conversation, um, whether the, the levels, uh, if you can tie that to IP on the vaccine or if you have any thoughts there. I can try to. So the so the um, the the framework has so the framework has a fifth level, right? Which is um, which is um, the post postmodern, or which is uh, it's, he's called it postmodern because the framework is from the nineties, right? But it's like, um, um, but a better name is meta systematic. So it's, it's so instead of instead of just um, applying your system to everything, which is kind of what. Um, um, which is kind of the same activity, whether you're a corporation or you're some sort of Marxist revolutionary group, which is you have one system and you see the world in, in, in that way everywhere, right? Whereas with the meta-systematic perspective, you have an array of sort of systems and in your sort of toolbox. And then depending on the context, uh, you pick up the right system for that, for that situation. So with the IP on the vaccine, I think the um the it would be the 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 question would be what system are we going to pick up in order to sort of regulate this right because the 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 patent system is meant to encourage um investment and innovation right it's by, by basically saying you can you can have a monopoly on something but you have to release how you made it to the world and then they can license that um idea from you um and that's supposed to incentivize people to invent and do things Whereas if you, but, but I think with the vaccine, the incentive system is already there in that the government governments would already pay lots and lots of money for it to exist. So maybe you don't need to do that. And maybe the the incentive, once it's been produced, is different from what you need to distribute it uh, globally everywhere. So I suppose that's the the mere systematic part is is once you have is reflecting on your your system and asking is it the right one of all the ones available rather than just learning a system and applying it. So that is that 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 I think is how it would work. And Doug has posted us something there. Cool. No, well I've just I've stuck in something in the show notes because um I think we all as humans have a tendency to go, oh that sounds a bit like the thing that I've been thinking about or whatever. Mm. But um there's this thing called the structure of um, observed learning outcomes or the solo taxonomy. So this is to do with I guess a pedagogical theory which goes through pre-structural understanding, unistructural, multistructural, relational. But then the bit that you've been talking about sounded a bit like extended abstract in the sense that you understand the world in a metaphorical way and also you you distance yourself from the ideas, like they're not so bounded up as part of your your own rationality. But um, Yes. Yeah. It's very similar to that. Yeah, so there's... Um... Yes, uh, I have the, the 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 book. This is from is called In Over Our Heads, which is quite, which I enjoyed a lot, and it's basically about the um, um, society. I mentioned this earlier that society is built to produce social people, and you can't be a systematic person unless you already have that sort of social thing, because there's there's no there's no real it doesn't really work um, without it. But the, there's no 
the, the demands of society are usually that you are a systematic person and that you have to re- review review the contract for your mobile phone in like a lawyer would or organize the privacy settings on your browser like a I don't know, software developer or paranoid sort of security consultant would do. Um, even though there's no there's not a lot of support set up to get people to that that system and there's not an awareness that um, maybe maybe a lot of people don't want to get to that don't want to develop in that way or they don't have the resources to do it so why are we making it a requirement in order to participate in society as well to do that oh. um, I think there's there's kind of a tie back to what we were you know what we were talking about last week on this podcast and John when you came on and you were saying that the you know context switching thing stuck with you um, and I'm sort of making the connection right now wondering if it's a certain kind of people who um, are sort of thinking about like at that abstract level about the system that's in play and you know what kind of relationship it has to context switching because I also know you know I know specialists who are absolute genius brilliant at their the thing that they're specialized in um but if you throw a you know monkey wrench in their their sort of work world that it that it's very hard for them to switch context or to you know take on new information I think we all know people like this um and I'm just wondering if there's you know, if that is part of a particular set of skills or a particular education or like, why is it that some people can kind of see, like, take a step back, see the whole system and then make a decision based on, you know, what might be a more applicable system? Um, I think it's a set of, it's, it's uh, the, the phrase Robert Keegan uses is way of understanding. So that's what these stages are. They're not like, they're not knowing specific facts. It's like a way of constructing constructing the world, like a set, set of skills. Um, so I think what you're describing is the boundary between uh, systematic and metasystematic, right? Which is about um, if you if you're behaving in a metasystematic way, it's about repairing repairing around the edges, enabled to enabled to go back to systematic systematic behavior where you where you're doing something. If you if you can't create the conditions for a system to operate in, then it's not going to work. I think that the, the key thing with metasystematic is that there's no, uh, there's no, there's nothing that will work in every context for that. So that's like, it's like um, the idea that there's no, there is no single scientific method. If you actually drill down into what are you actually doing with your like time and brain, there's when you do biology, you do a very different thing from when you do uh, quantum physics, even though they're all called doing the scientific method, it's not, um, it's not the same thing at all because sometimes in in physics that when you actually do it you spend years building a a model to subtract every tiny bit of noise and then your actual experiment might only last a single second but it's all the years you spent creating the model to take away all the noise just get the signal that's the important part whereas with biology it's like maybe a long time of like prodding a particular cell to try and express a particular uh, behavior or protein or something um, yeah. and you incrementally you get closer and closer to it which is very different from i don't know it, it doesn't, doesn't the final thing doesn't happen in seconds it might happen over the course of days or weeks or something mm. oh, interesting yeah so the fight so the fact so the five is like saying you know, it's about creating the conditions for people who just want to follow the system so they can just do that um you have to be able to recognize when is this system going to break soon or is it going to keep on working or is it going to fail 
because of reasons outside of itself. Maybe that's maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Obviously, it's the it's the top highest one, so it's the one you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it 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 also. Uh, I could talk about the book for a long time. It's a very good book. I, re- I highly recommend it. Well, there's there's so many different parallels here because it sounds like what you're saying is that there's and let's not go too far down this rabbit hole because we haven't got time. But <laughs> it sounds like you know in Plato's Republic where they talk about philosopher kings and like people yeah. get into a certain level of rationality yeah. such that they are in a good way to make those decisions but that mm. spills over into fascism because then well these people can't make those decisions therefore those people shouldn't be part of society and yeah. it's a really difficult balancing act i guess yeah. yes i agree i think that's uh um I think that's part of the, the the thing. The thing to remember is even if you have a perfect way of understanding, if you don't have, if you aren't in the context where that's happening, you can easily lose and get it completely wrong. Um, and that happens all the time. Yep. Yes. We yes. see that often in society. <laughs> mm-hmm. Lord, is there a particular link in here? I'm just looking at time. Is there a particular link in here that you would like to discuss, given that we've pondered this twice? Um. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that. Um, we wanted to talk about IP on the vaccine, and really, I just wanted to say there should not be IP on the vaccine, and I will argue that up and down all day. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm not sure that either of you, A, disagree, and B, I think it would be really interesting to hear what the arguments are, because thus far, I have not seen a single argument saying that there should be IP on the vaccine that I've agreed with or thought was relevant even. Um I have yeah. a fun question then if you if if we can start from the assumption that we think there shouldn't be IP on the vaccine. Um so what open source license should the vaccine the vaccine have? If we if we just pick the I don't know, the Pfizer vaccine at random. Like is that the because when you go on GitHub and you pick a license, like you can pick from there's like a uni license or whatever, which it just releases it everyone available forever. They can people can sell it, people can change it, whatever. Or you can have the uh, the GPL license, which means no one can ever sell it, or e- even if they if they even introduce, even if they use a little bit of the vaccine to make a whole new thing that they put all the work into, they can never sell that thing because it has the GPL in it in a little bit. Mm. Like people say, things that projects have been like GPL poisoned sometimes because you can't because if you use even a small amount of that of something with that licensing, it means that you can never it can never become a proprietary product again because um, of the way the license is written. Hmm. This is hard. That, That's a hard well, question. Well, I know, uh, like, so I'd, I'd be torn between, on the one hand, um, as I mentioned in a meeting Law was in today, when I wrote my thesis, I put a CC0 license on that, which is, which is donating to the public domain. Right. Um, but then you lose all control over it. Like, you're, you can't put any conditions onto it. Someone could pretend it was their thesis, whatever. That's what I did, actually. That's what you did as well. Yeah, I just you, I just took your thesis, put my name um, on it, and <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, Sorry. congratulations, Dr. Hilliger. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, but the other thing is, some uh, I remember having a long conversation with someone. I think at like Mozilla Festival or something about whether you should, and this was Creative Commons licensing, whether you should do the share alike license because they said that was like forcing. What they? I've forgotten the term they use, but it's basically forcing people to to share things in future. So if yeah. they make any changes, they have to share the changes as well. And so I, 
I can see I, I have sympathy for that kind of view because it's it's kind of working the system of licenses against people who want to abuse it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the I mean I'm a pretty big fan of the share alike uh, feature on Creative Commons licensing because I feel like copyright has a lot wrong with it, and I would like to push uh, copyleft as a into the mainstream so that it's you know so that it's something that is much more common than it already is. I think that it's mm. it, it's very common. But like we had a meeting yesterday um, with a with a Catalyst charity uh, with a recent graduate who had never heard of open licensing, had never heard of open source, had never heard of Creative Commons licensing, and she's a creator. And, you know, helping people to understand the benefits of those, I feel like the more we can convince people and even by share alike forcing them, um, maybe it helps the ecosystem grow. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, but with the vaccine, yeah, I think with vaccines, it's it's a it's different. So creative work, we pointed out in that particular meeting that we were pointing to Brian. Brian was in that meeting as well. Brian's basically built his business um, where he he draws people's ideas. He's built that on top of Creative Commons. You know, his i his ideas and his drawings kind of go viral uh, because of that. Those open licensing. With the vaccine, we're still dealing with things going viral, but we want to do the opposite. Um, we we kind of want want to remove that viral load instead. And so, the the fewer barriers we can put in that way, probably the better. So people don't have to think, "Oh, am I allowed to do this with it?" Or if I do this, was it cause any unintended consequences? That kind of thing. The only decent maybe way I can think that there might be an objection would be you might want to control who has access to it. Because mRNA based vaccines, you could you could deploy biological agents in there, which could really mess people up. Yeah, there's yeah, there's a whole level of complication when we're talking about a vaccine um, that doesn't sort of stretch into kind of bits and bobs on computers. Although, you know, if you were I don't know. Going back to John's question about which, you know, which license would you choose and should people be able to sell the vaccine? And, you know, I think it's a really hard question because um, pharmaceutical companies don't really need any more money, (laughs) to tell you the truth. And if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, how it's grown in the past hundred years and the kinds of stuff they do, I don't think there's a lot of argument for social good (laughs) there. I mean, Obviously, like having advanced medicine and, you know, I was at the dentist today and I was really happy that I didn't have a a lot of pain, although my face was uh, numb. Um, You know, these kinds of advancements in medicine are really important for society and for our longevity as human beings. Um, But at the same time, it sort of feels like with a vaccine in particular, with a pandemic in particular, we are literally repeating exactly the same kinds of advice and the same kind of social issues and conflict that we had in 1918 with the Spanish flu. And we're over 100 years later and we're, you know. Oh, I have a story about the Spanish flu. Do you know why it's called the Spanish flu? I think I've read. I think I've I've forgotten. (laughs) <laughs> so at the time when the Spanish flu hit, um, most countries in Europe were under censorship. So they were censoring the news that was coming out. Spain was not involved in the First World War and so wasn't censoring its news. So it was the only country reporting its death due to influenza and therefore everyone assumed it came from Spain. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
I had heard, I had forgotten that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting, isn't it? When it yeah. comes to like working openly and sharing, sometimes it can it can backfire. That kind of thing. I think it's interesting that the UK government, or I think the World Health Organization, has changed the naming of different variants of COVID nineteen away from the Indian variant, the South African variant, to like you know Alpha, Beta, you know Delta, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's much better. Do they forget Charlie? Is there a Charlie variant? I don't it's think Greek. Charlie. Why does everybody is in the always Greek forget Charlie? Oh, that's not a Greek word. That's the. It's that's not the Greek at all. No, I'm in the maritime alphabet right now. <laughs> uh, okay, doesn't make that. Doesn't that make all of the variants Greek if we name them after the Greek alphabet? Yeah, and isn't that offensive to the Greek people? Oh, sure. They're a small, big. They, they're not. There's not big like India or, or Britain on the yeah. on the world stage, so they don't get to complain about it. Oh, I feel like is this right? is, and this was brought to you by Everything is Derogatory, a regular segment <laughs> on this podcast that we forgot about. Huh? Uh, we should probably wrap things up because we are over the hour mark for the first time on this podcast. I know. I feel like we did a good job making it to an hour. Yeah. John, you should stop being so interesting. I have a lot of podcast experience. I used to run, I used to do a podcast with my brother called uh, Love You Bro, where we would do, it was like a catch up. It was basically just us catching up every week and then we would just release it. Um, oh, cool. It That's was meant cool. to promote his career as a, um, as a writer performer of like one man shows and stuff. Um, but it didn't, it leashed off his audience basically. So it, it basically, the, the, the podcast did not spill over into him. It was just like, he, he was he was pointing people to he was doing shows and flyering and stuff and then some of those people would listen to the podcast so it wasn't uh, uh, it wasn't enabling him very much so we haven't done it for a while um, it was good it nice was a lot idea. of fun yeah nice idea cool yeah. well John thank you very much for for joining us on this podcast as ever there's some stuff which we'll have to point uh, punt to next week where can people um, find you if they want to hear more from you where can they go. Uh, sure. If I can remember my uh, Macedon stuff, then I will. I'm, I'm going to quickly look that up. But on on Twitter, um, I am at doctor underscore the underscore evidence, and then on uh, on uh, this on Macedon, I am at King Mob at uh, refactorcamp.org. Um, so find where does the there. King Mob come from? It's a. Uh, it's from. Uh, so I got it from uh, a situationist like art collective in like the seventies in seventies London who called himself King Mob, and then they got it from a um, a, a riot in London that opened up a jail, and then it said a mob basically opened up the jail, and then they left a sign that said "Freed on the orders of King Mob," and there was a, this King this King Mob idea was always a thing where it was like um, just uh, the authority of the crowd basically. Nice. I like it. Cool. Well, we'll include uh, your contact links in the show notes. So if you want to throw them in the etherpad for us, that'll make my job easier. And cool. I don't know what we're talking about next week. Um, ramble chats. We will ramble chat next week on the Dow Blog. And if you would like to join us for a future episode, if you'd like to be um, a, a wonderful guest like John's been and Brian was last week, just get in touch. Um, you can get in touch via. Twitter, Macedon, uh, our email address, you can just type in, you can mash the keyboard at weareopen.coop or you can just type something nice like podcast at weareopen.coop. It'll all get to us and we'd love to have you on. So don't be shy. Um, cool. Cheers. A carrier pigeon would be fine too. Just 
just to be clear. Yes. I think Three South Towers, Morbeth. There we go. Cheers. <laughs> Bye-bye Cheers for now. Cheers for now. Bye. Thank you.